In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 is our text, which we have progressed to today in our exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon of all sermons ever to come forth from the words of a human being, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it is today that we come to the 17th message in this series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount, and we progress to the fourth beatitude, beginning in verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. In our study thus far of the teachings of our Lord in these Beatitudes, we found out that these Beatitudes are placed at the beginning of his sermon because they give us a description of the nature of his kingdom of truth. And these Beatitudes give us a description of the citizens who are living in the kingdom of heaven. These Beatitudes are, again, not road maps to show us how to enter the kingdom and be saved, but they are mirrors to give evidence to those who are saved and in the kingdom. If I am going to go to a far country or to another state, and I do not know how to get there, I'll need a road map to show me how to get there. I won't use a mirror to show me how to get from Missouri to California. I'll use a road map. But if I want to know what I look like and where I'm dwelling, I'll use a mirror. And the Beatitudes are designed to enable us to look into the truth of God's character, which he produces in his people, to see whether or not we are his workmanship, because we are not saved by works. We are saved by the unmerited favor of God's grace. Now, that is an established fact of Scripture. So, if there are any here today which you're hoping for a right standing with God because you say, well, the Sermon on the Mount's my religion, and I'm just going to do what it says there, and then I'll be right with God. It only shows that you have not even begun to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Because it is by grace that we're saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, human merit, lest we should boast. But at the same time, the Scripture goes on to tell us that we are His workmanship created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So the Beatitudes are the workmanship which God produces in the people who are in His kingdom. They don't produce that themselves. Now, in these Beatitudes, the first one we found was that of poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that one of the first conscious awarenesses that a person has when he has experienced a work of God's grace is he comes to see himself as a pauper in spirit. He doesn't have what it takes because of what God demands. And because he becomes a beggar then, he's a pauper, he has to go out of his own righteousness and lay hold upon the righteousness and salvation which is outside of him, and that enables him to be ruled by the teachings of the kingdom of heaven. This then leads to the second beatitude, 
which is that blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. A Christian is a person who is aware of his sinfulness. He does not try to hide it. He's consciously aware of it. And he's no longer a self-righteous, self-contented person with his sin and his own righteousness. He knows that he is a sinner. And he confesses that and he acknowledges that. And that in return brings the comfort of having God's Spirit remove the burden of sin from off of him. This then leads to the third beatitude, which is that of meekness. Not weakness, but meekness. And meekness is the way the Christian reacts to the providences of God and to the actions which he receives at the hands of his fellow men. He's one which is not a self-aggressive person, but he knows now, as we have learned in our studies of recent weeks, that whatever occurs, occurs according to the appointed lot of God for him in life. And that if he with Job sees that God appoints him a large heritage, that the same God can also take that. And so when that time comes, the Christian reacts with meekness and says, The Lord knows best. It's the Lord. It's good. Let him alone. And so meekness then is a passive character which reacts to the way that others treat us. Now we come today to this fourth beatitude and we find that this is what the Christian's main pursuit is in life. The Christian, through his meek character, is no longer seeking to build barns and tear down his barns in order to build bigger barns to hold on to the temporal affairs of this life. And the world can't understand the Christian. The world cannot understand, why aren't you out here in the rat race with us all trying to get all that you can? And that's because the Christian has found something more valuable and more desirable to pursue after. And that is his hungering and thirsting after righteousness, which the world knows nothing about. Hungering and thirsting is our subject today. This is what the Christian considers to be the main pursuit in life, or the chief reason as to why he, a Christian, is alive today. The Apostle Paul would say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May I ask you, what is the chief reason you're alive today? What are you pursuing after? Because all things being equal, you and I are no more than the product of what we desire, what we pursue after. You are here today basically because you desire to come here today. And you will do what your heart desires to do. And so any given person is but a product of what they are pursuing after in life. And the chief pursuit of a Christian is that which our Lord says consists in this one word, righteousness. Now let's look at the nature of this desire first. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let's look at the nature of this desire. Negatively, what this is not. This hungering and thirsting after righteousness is first not the mere participation in external religious actions. 
Go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5 and verse 20. Same passage here in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll see that a group of religious people, the best religious people, when it comes to moral standards and human judgment, in Jesus' day, had a form of righteousness. And we read, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees consisted totally in that of external religious activities. They were always doing something religious. They fasted twice a week. They gave their tithe. They were encompassing land and sea, making proselytes, getting them circumcised and added to their little sect. And yet in all of this, our Lord says, this righteousness is not sufficient to allow you to enter the kingdom of heaven. So external religious activities is not that which the Christian is hungering after. Go with me to the same passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew, chapter 7 and verse 22. Our Lord here gives a description of the final day of judgment. And some people which have been very active in religious deeds, good deeds, done in the name of Christ, shall yet come up lacking in that day. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? We preached. And in thy name cast out devils, done miracles. And in thy name done many wonderful works. We participated in all sorts of religious activity. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So mere external religious activity is not that which the Christian is desiring or pursuing after as the chief good in life. Bring that up today. Going to church, singing in the choir, teaching a Sunday school class. All of these things are external religious acts which are good in their place. But that is not the chief pursuit after which a Christian is seeking. Something deeper than this. Secondly, this pursuit of righteousness is not mere morality and decency as defined by existing human standards. You can go into any given area, and in that given area, why certain decent people are expected to live a certain way. And those standards are based upon the concurrence of all the uh, community and what is good and decent. But in another generation, you can go back to that same community and those standards have changed. And what it took to be a good, decent, law-abiding person 50 years ago, now that's all changed. And you can participate in all sorts of activities today that you couldn't participate in 50 years ago and be considered a decent, moral person. So the what that that the Christian is pursuing after is not morality and decency as defined by human standards. For God has a standard which never changes. It's called his commandments. And throughout all the generations of human beings, those commandments are never changed nor altered. And that's what is decent, and that is what is moral, as defined by God. Then thirdly, this righteousness is the, not merely the re realization that something is lacking in my life. 
If that be the case, I can go out here and knock on every door in Osceola the next three days and find every person here in Osceola, Missouri, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Because every person has an awareness that something is lacking in their life which they've got to have more of. The man that we just mentioned a moment ago in the Bible that had his barns full, he still had an awareness that his life was lacking because he said, I must tear them down and build more. Now, if I knocked on his door and I said, are you hungering after righteousness today? And if he said, what do you mean by righteousness? And I mean, do you realize there's something lacking in your life? He'd say, oh, yes, I'm hungering after that. But that's not what our Lord is talking about here. Our Lord does not pronounce a blessing upon the person who's merely realizing that something's lacking in his life. And incidentally, let that be a little word of spiritual instruction to you. Sometimes our pastors and our missionaries get a little more zealous than they have understanding. And they come back sometimes with glowing reports from various fields of service and say, Oh, the people are hungering after God. (laughs) And that isn't necessarily the case. If they're hungering after God, it's because the Spirit of God's at work creating in them that hunger. But you'll find in the Philippine Islands today there are people over there hungering after something, but it's not God. You'll find it in the various other countries. You'll find it in America. You'll find it here in this community. And so beware of just taking, or let me rephrase that, take with a grain of salt any time that you hear a report that, well, the world is hungering after God and people are having a hunger for God, when in most cases it's nothing that they're just sensing that something's lacking in their life and that they have not yet obtained it. Now, the natural man is pursuing after it and he thinks the answer is in the creation. Well, if this is not what our Lord pronounces a blessing upon, then what is this desire, this righteousness, which the Christian is pursuing after. Look at the object which is pursued. It's called righteousness. Well, what is this? What is this term, righteousness? And again, we're not left to our own definitions to define this word as we think, as our human wisdom would define it. We must stay within the revelation of God and let him define what righteousness is. Go with me now to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 51 and verse 5. Isaiah, chapter 51 and verse 5. Now, notice how it's used here. The prophet says of God, My righteousness is near. My salvation is gone forth. And mine arms shall judge the people, and the isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arms shall they trust. Now, notice how righteousness is defined here as salvation. My righteousness is near. My salvation is gone forth. Look in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of, what? Righteousness. Now, do you see that? Isaiah says here, I will rejoice in my God. 
because he's clothed me with salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Two verses only have we chosen. Many passages could we choose if time would permit to show that righteousness in the Bible is defined as salvation. So when our Lord is pronouncing a blessing upon this person who is hungering and thirsting, he is saying this person is blessed because they're pursuing after salvation, for that is righteousness. But now it still has not defined for us what salvation is. And when we use the word salvation, we are victims of our own time period in which we live. If you have been born in the last 50 years in the United States of America, the best chances are that you have grown up under a religious environment which defines salvation as being saved just from the penalty of your sin. That is, you make a decision in Christ and your sins are forgiven and now you are in a state of salvation. You're saved. Well, praise God, that's a marvelous part of salvation, but salvation is not just being justified. Salvation is not just making an initial profession of faith and being joined in union to Christ. There is a righteousness in that, but salvation is a broad term which is used in the Scriptures. It's not just one little isolated thing which is related to our conversion. Salvation is a broad word, like the hoop. Remember, you, some of you ladies may have worn those huge skirts a year, years ago, which you had a hoop on them. I won't ask for anybody to hold their hand up to say I belonged in that generation, okay? Uh, you might give away some of your, some of your age. But those were, we used to call them Mother Hubbards. They covered everything and touched nothing. <laughs> and that's sort of the way that the, the old hoop was. It just covered everything. That's the way salvation is as used in the Bible. It's not just a little word. It's a word which includes many other ideas in the Scripture. Let me give you some of them. If you'll go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. And verse 33, here you'll see that our Lord is talking about more than mere forgiveness, although that is included in salvation. But in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now let's look at that then. Seek ye first God's kingdom and his salvation, all that it includes. Well, what is salvation? What is this righteousness? Now go to the New Testament epistle of the book of Ephesians, and here the Apostle Paul will begin to explain what salvation is and what it includes. Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath, past tense, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, follow me carefully. Before there was ever a world began, God in his purpose purposed to create a people called the human race and to create a world for them to live. 
And he created in his purposes spiritual blessings for an elect group of that human race who would fall into sin, and those blessings would bring about holiness and purity to present those people before him in love. What God purposed back here, here is a people out of their fallen state, which are going to be restored to salvation, to holiness, to blessedness, in order for them to come from the depths of sin into which they will be born and inherit the salvation, they must partake of spiritual blessings. God must come and fill their cup. They cannot fill it themselves. And if you will take time to go through the Bible, here are some words which you need to be familiar with because they are included in this blanket word, salvation. Number one, election is involved in salvation. Number two, predestination or God's providence of events is included in salvation. Number three, redemption is included in salvation. Number four, regeneration or the new birth is included in salvation. Number five, conversion is included in salvation where I'm turned from self to God. Number six, repentance. Number seven, faith. Number eight, adoption. Number nine, justification. Number ten, sanctification. And number eleven, glorification. All of these famous Bible doctrines are included in that one word, salvation. So salvation is far more than a one-time experience which takes place when I initially embrace Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now, due to the lack of teaching in our churches and in our evangelism, then many people grow up spend all their lives in churches and never understand the meaning of these precious teachings involving salvation. And dear, dear beloved, if you do not understand the meaning of, say, the word adoption or sanctification, you're going to have a difficult time understanding your Bible. I don't care what version you use. The problem is not the need of, de of new versions. The problem is the need for us to understand what these great doctrines are, so that when we read them in the Scriptures, we immediately know what the disciple or the apostle is talking about. And because we have been led to think that salvation is merely when I first place my trust in Christ and I am saved from the penalty of my sin, I'm saved and that's all there is to it. That's only one little part of the great blanket involved in salvation. Now, these spiritual blessings are in Christ. They are not to be found in ourselves. And the believer is a person who has been blessed by God's grace and given within his new man a hunger and a thirst for the full salvation that has been purchased for him in Christ Jesus. Now, that's why that you cannot make an initial confession of faith in Christ and settle down in church membership for the rest of your life. It's, not, it's just the beginning. And I fear greatly that's what's happened in American Christianity. 
We've told people, you're saved, that's it. And then they just settle down like the Pharisees. They go to church on Sunday. They give their tithe. They even sometimes sacrifice a little bit, but they never grow anymore from there. And you ask why. Well, Pastor, why is that the case? In most cases, they've never been taught that there's any more to salvation than just initially joining a church. I believe one of uh, young ladies talking with my wife this past week, saying that she was raised in another church. And uh, every uh, Sabbath day, while her mother saw that she was in church, until finally she got old enough to be confirmed. And she was taken to the church, and they confirmed her. And then after they got home that day, why, the mother said, Now then, you're confirmed. You don't have to go to church anymore. And so next Sunday, while the young lady got up, and she started to go to Sunday school and church, the mother said, Where are you going? Said, I'm going to church. Well, you don't have to now. You're already confirmed. That's all there is to it. Now, that can be practiced in religion today. When the idea that salvation is just an initial response to God, then it's all over from there on. So the believer, though, is not the person that's merely content with just an initial union with Christ, but they have a hunger which goes far more than that. The believer desires first the imputed righteousness of justification, which results in the removal of the punishment of my sin. The book of Romans chapter 4, Paul describes David as a man saying, Oh, what a blessed person it is whom God does not impute sin to them, but he has imputed righteousness unto them. And the believer is made to hunger after that as he's coming to Christ. He sees that as he stands before God, he's unrighteous, he's unholy. And as the judge is there on the bench, he knows that the person is guilty. And the person is made aware that he needs a legal standing before God where God in his favor can receive him. And then he is made to see by the grace of God that God's own Son has come and has met all the demands which the judge has set forth and required. And that all the sins of the believer have been imputed to Jesus Christ. And in turn, all the righteousness of Christ in his character and his standing before God is now imputed or charged to the account of the believer so that now the believer rests in the hope that his sins are no longer imputed to him and he stands before God in a legal state as if he'd never sinned or ever would sin. And he stands perfect in his standing before God. That's justification. Oh, that's pardon of sin. That's having sin forgiven. And that is a one-time act which is hungered after when we first come to Christ and we're drawn by His Spirit and we're enabled as a simple child to place our faith and trust in Him. And that satisfaction is given there where we never hunger again for a state to be justified. We're only justified one time. Once and for all. Once and for all. The weakest Christian here this morning is as much justified in the eyes of God as the strongest saint of God. 
The weakest Christian is as righteous in the eyes of God as the most holy saint of God as far as justification is related. But that doesn't end at all. The Christian not only desires to have a right standing before God's court, he desires to have a new heart and a new character which will enable him to have fellowship with the one that's on the bench. And that's called the implanted righteousness of sanctification. God's Holy Spirit now comes in sanctification and takes up His abode within us. And this results in the removal of sin's power. That when we sin, the Spirit then overrules that sin and gives us power to have it broken in our lives. And that's the righteousness of sanctification, which is a continual progressive thing. And then the Christian, though, desires more than that. He desires the imparted righteousness of glorification, which will result in the removal of sin's presence. One day I'm not going to live in a world of sinners anymore. One day I'm going to, not going to live in a world in which that sin is going to be in me anymore. But one day I'm going to may, be made free from the very presence of sin. That's called glorification. And that's what I hunger after today, because it has been planted within me to hunger and thirst after the full salvation. I not only want to be pardoned, I want to be Christ-like. Is that true of you? Can you say it's the beating desire of my heart to be like my Lord, to do His will on earth as the inhabitants of heaven are doing it? I want to have a life that when God says, Jim Gables, do this, the initial response of my whole being is, Yes, Lord, speak, for your servant heareth. Can you say that is your desire today? That your heart just beats after to be existing in a life like that? then, my friend, that's a great indication that God's grace is working. Now, let's look next at the manner in which that this righteousness is pursued. We've seen it's salvation, and salvation is a full scope of salvation, forgiveness of sin, sanctification of character. We sang the song a moment ago that it pardons from sin and cleanses where? Within. We sing the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, be a sin, the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Salvation is a broad thing that encompasses all the righteousness that's in Christ. Now, let's look how we pursue after it now as Christians. Hunger and thirst is the spiritual desire of the soul for the knowledge of God. Go back with me now to the book of Isaiah, chapter 26. Isaiah, chapter 26. This term, hunger and thirst, is used for spiritual desire. Verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 26. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, we have waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. 
etc., etc. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Here the writer says that I desire God. I seek after God. And so when Jesus pronounces, blessed are they which hunger and thirst, he's actually saying, blessed are they who are seeking after God, who are seeking out all the salvation that is in God. Now, these appetites called hunger and thirst are conscious appetites which reveal our wants and our needs. You and I have some appetites which we're not conscious of until they be taken from us. For example, do you re- are you conscious of the fact that your lungs are breathing air right now? Hmm? Can you sense that? No, that's an unconscious appetite. But you put your finger on your nose and hold it there for a little bit and you'll get very consciously aware that something is going on in there. Do you know that every moment of your existence there are cells within your body which are crying out for the blood to come and satisfy them? Did you know that? No, you were not consciously aware of that as far as physically experiencing it. You don't have those little cells crying out, give me blood, give me blood, give me blood. But they're doing that, you see. You're not conscious of that. But Jesus describes that a Christian is one who is conscious of the fact that he wants all of the righteousness which is available in Christ Jesus. He's aware of that. And that gives us this indication, dear soul, whether or not that we have been born by the grace of God as to whether or not we're consciously aware we have an appetite for the things of God. Now, these appetites are not only conscious appetites, but they are at times uncomfortable appetites. I haven't met too many people which said, oh, I just can't wait till I get hungry uh, for dinner. And I just really enjoy getting hungry. And I really enjoy getting thirsty. No, what we say we enjoy is the sense of satisfaction which comes when the food is taken in our system and the water comes within. And dear people, there are portions of the Christian life in which that he can say, I go through seasons which I'm uncomfortable in that I want more of God than what I have right now. Can you say that today? Yes, do not confuse this with your justification before God. You stand perfect in the eyes of God legally. And God does not charge sin to your account or to my account. But can you say that you're consciously aware that as far as your character is concerned, that there is a greater need of God, a greater desire and a hunger and thirst after the things of God? I hope you can today, because these appetites are sometimes uncomfortable appetites. But these appetites are useful appetites. The appetites of hunger and thirst are blessed because they're useful. When I hunger, it leads me to the table for food to satisfy my hunger, not to the garbage can for slop. Where does the Christian go to have their spiritual desires satisfied? Not to the garbage cans of Egypt for the onions and the leeks and the garlics of this world. 
But no, they go to the heavenly manna, the bread of life, to partake of the food that is in Christ Jesus. And then the appetite of hunger. When I hunger, it does not lead me to a muddy puddle, but it leads me to a clear spring of water to have my thirst satisfied. So do you see why Jesus pronounces a person blessed? Is because the very appetite which he creates in them by his blessing of grace then draws them to the table of life where the bread of life is spread before them. And it draws them away from the things of this world to drink of that fountain of living water which shall sustain and give them satisfaction in life. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied, contented. Now, let's give some observations on spiritual desire to those that are unconverted. We will not have time to deal with those of us that are Christians in this week's message, but to those who are unconverted, how does this matter of spiritual desire relate to you? First, let me say to you, if you're here without Christ, you're not converted. You're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You're perfectly content with the life that you have as it is now. First, hunger is satisfied with nothing but food. Only food will satisfy hunger. Not entertainment, not plays. Not all the things which the world has, when a person gets hungry, he doesn't call for a comedian. He calls for someone that will come and give him food. And not just any food, only the food which will sustain his hunger. Suppose you were starving to death today and your body was drawn up and you could see the bones sticking out of your flesh. And you knew that in your stomach there was a gnawing there, but you also knew that in order to do away with that gnawing and to eliminate the, the bones sticking out of your flesh, you're going to have to put something in that stomach that had nutrients in it. Suppose I came to you with a nice big bowl of freshly cooked tree bark. And my, I'd put all that together and put some stuff in it and it smelled good. And I said, now here's a great big bowl of bark. Eat it. And you know better than that. You know that that may knock some of the edge off of the hunger pains, but it will not put meat back on the bones. It doesn't have the nutrients there. If you're here without Jesus Christ, may I say to you that if you are longing after the righteousness in Christ, you'll not find it anywhere but in His Word and His Word alone. You're hungering after that. Secondly, you do not have to persuade a hungry man to eat. He'll do what's natural. Suppose I invited you to my house and I had a nice big steak there with potatoes and salad and corn. That's my meal, so that I'll give it to you. There it's all laid out there before you, and here you sit down, and the first thing you notice is a little nick out of the corner of the plate. And you sort of take your fork and you move the steak around and there on the design of that plate while there's a flower with a bee on it. And you look up at me and say, Mr. Gable, I just can't eat this. 
And I say, what's the matter? Is there something wrong? Is the steak not fixed right? Well, uh, that bee sitting there on that flower sort of kills my appetite, and I'm just, could you excuse me? Or that broken dish there, uh, I just can't eat out of those things. Now, what are you telling me? Hmm? You want me to get to the juggler vein and what your problem is? You're not hungry. You're not hungry. When I go fishing with my uncle in the summertime, we go and we get these big minnows out of the river, look like sardines, and we put them in jars and let them decay about eight hours, and they put out an odor that uh, you can smell us for two miles down the river coming. We have them there in the boat. When they're first frozen in there, why, we have to get a knife and take them out of there, put them on the hook. It comes dinner time. We open a can of sardines, which looks just like those. We use the same knife to get those sardines out of there, and we eat. You know why? We're hungry. But you couldn't get me to eat a sardine at my house with a jar of those dead men is there for anything. Now, why? I'm hungry in one case, the other I'm not. And do you know why, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know why you haven't come to Christ? You're just not hungry. That's the only reason that people don't come to Jesus Christ is that they're not hungry for what He has to offer. Oh, I hear all the excuses. Preacher, I'd come, I'd come to Christ, but your church, you've got people in your church. And again, I don't like the way you preach. Your tone of voice is not just right. And the way you wear your clothes and the way you comb your hair. And if you just had a better messenger, then I'd listen. No, no, my friend, your problem is not the preacher, it's not the church. Your problem is you're not hungry enough for the food that is set forth. You don't have any appetite. You will not come to Christ that you might have life, is what Jesus warned. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, Jeremiah says, I did eat thy words, and they were like honey within me. And so as long as you have no appetite, you'll never go to Christ for the food that is in him. Then this shows us the utter inexcusableness of those who perish under the sound of the gospel ministry. We read in the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 16 through 24, that there was a feast that was prepared by a king for his son. And he sent out messengers into the highways and byways and invited people to come. And the Bible tells us that as they went up to the doors, all the people began to, with one consent, make excuse. And they would say, I can't come, I've married a wife. I can't come, I've bought some oxen. I can't come, I've purchased a field. Now, what was their problem? Their problem was that they were not hungry for that which the king was offering them. And why were they not hungry? They preferred the temporal things of this life over the manna which God has for those that are in Christ Jesus. And if you perish today under the sound of this gospel, you cannot blame this preacher, you can't blame this church, you can't blame God. The only person you can blame is your own sinful appetite. You were just not hungry enough to come to the wedding feast in which Jesus said all things are ready. Everything. You don't have to bring a thing. Just come as you are. And Isaiah would stand in the Old Testament and say, Oh, he is a thirst. Let him come to the waters. Let him buy without money. Come freely. 
And the reason men, women, boys, and girls do not come to Jesus Christ is that their appetites are for other things other than righteousness which is in him. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we're grateful today for the bodies which you've given us. We know they're normal bodies because even now we feel within our stomachs the hunger pain for the food which is necessary to sustain us. And Father, we're grateful today because your grace has created in us a hunger and thirst after you. And we know that we're in your kingdom. We know that we're one of yours because our hunger and after you is being drawn out of us. And we're finding satisfaction in your word. Oh God, if there's a soul here today that's without Christ and that's hungering and thirsting for satisfaction in righteousness, that wants salvation, wants their sins pardoned, wants to be a different man, woman, boy, or girl, may you fill them today with more grace and satisfaction.